0: Radio in San Francisco, this is Flashpoints. I'm Dennis Bernstein. Today on show, the immigration nightmare unfolding at the U.S.-Mexico border grew more violent and deadly by the hour. Also, the January 6th Select Committee makes a bit of history, recommends Trump for criminal prosecution. And we'll take a look at what inflation and the ups and downs of the stock market really means to working people in real terms that Maybe we can understand all this coming up straight ahead on Flashpoint. Stay tuned. And you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. My name is Dennis Ferenc. We Later on in this broadcast, we'll play a little bit of the sound from today's hearing. Uh, I'm sure you have heard uh, by now. Uh, that the uh, Select Committee has, in fact, recommended that uh, Trump and a few others be prosecuted by the Justice Department. But maybe uh, (laughs) when the special prosecutor decides to move back uh, to the continental United States, uh, we'll see a little bit more action. It, It is worrisome to watch. Uh, how that doesn't unfold. Anyway, uh, we're going to start uh, by taking a look at the economy, inflation. What are all these things that are going on now? The the sort of the, the crashing uh, of the crypto uh, land scheme. What does all this mean to us? Everyday folks trying to get by. Joining us to talk about this is Mr. James Henry. And Mr. Henry's books include The Blood Bankers, tales from the Global Underground Economy and the Pirate Bankers. He is a global justice fellow at Yale, a senior fellow at the Columbia University Center for Sustainable Investment. And he's formerly the chief economist of McKinsey and Company. Okay. Well, welcome back to Flashpoints, uh, James Henry. Good to have you back. Uh, good to be with you. And you. Uh- um,
1: uh, <laughs> the economy is a challenge right now. Nobody what knows what's going to happen, but we could talk about it.
0: Uh, well, well, well. Let's let's see if we can just help uh, help us get a little bit more literate uh, about what's yeah. happening to us or not happening to us. We hear about inflation all the time. Most of the people, I I, I do this. I stop and I, I ask people, random people. You know, I'm a journalist. Hey, what what, what do you think uh, uh, the reason is that inflation is so dangerous? Silence. <laughs> you know, but we're hearing about it all the time.
1: Yeah, exactly. I think uh, the Federal Reserve has announced that we need to have an absolute two uh, percent target for inflation, and that they're struggling to get it down from where it is right now, which is somewhere uh, around seven percent. Uh, you know, there's a number of different inflation measures, and depending on who you ask, uh, but everybody agrees that it's been. Uh, you know, declining for the last few months, but it peaked sometime in the middle of the summer around 9%. Um, but, you know, who, what your inflation rate is really depends on who you are. So uh, people who are, you know, uh, consuming a lot of gasoline, they're seeing uh, higher rates uh, back in the summer, and now the rates have fallen dramatically. Uh, people who are con- worried about health care or re- in the rental market, uh they're seeing vastly different uh inflation rates and, and folks who have have to buy food and are are dependent on the grocery stores are have seen especially high rates this month that was up ten percent so it really does depend in the society on uh, you know exactly who you are like most things do uh, and so that's kind of part of the inequality of inflation. It imposes different costs on a lot of different folks, and it's very hard to summarize. It.
0: What is it? What is well, it's, inflation? Well, the standard
1: economic definition starts with a basket of goods, and we kind of have to agree on what, what is that essential basket of goods. But, you know, you, you go around and you do surveys of people and you figure out what on average uh, people are consuming. They're going to be consuming uh, commodities, uh, food, and uh, you know, beverages and uh, they're going to be consuming clothing. And, you know, so you get uh, then there's going to be services like uh, uh, rents, rents and healthcare, care. Um, and some of those are hard to measure uh, exactly. But at the end of the day, you end up having a list that's kind of common uh, for the average uh, person. <laughs> that's just, this is the concept. And then you track that over time and see how much that average basket uh, uh, costs relative to the baseline when you started out. Uh, So, you know, measuring inflation is an art form. It isn't perfect by any means, but the Department of Labor and uh, Department of Commerce uh, have been coming up with these measures for for decades. Uh, And, you know, basically uh, the... The most you can say about them is that they're they're roughly consistent over time. So we can say that we may not know whether the absolute rate of inflation is right, but uh, it's kind of relative to last month um, or, you know, previous times. We can have a pretty good sense of whether it's uh, uh, headed up or down. We've had, you know, during the 20th century, we had a number of countries that completely lost control of their inflation rates. Germany is, during Weimar, Germany was probably the best example. And so we know the extreme uh, consequences uh, on societies of of letting inflation go. Um, But when you're talking about the difference between a 2% or a 3% or a 5% rate of inflation and the actual social cost of that, it's much less clear to many economists that uh, you know the Federal Reserve is uh, kind of justified in imposing uh, kind of you know uh, civil war surgery on the whole society just to get the inflation rate down. They're mainly concerned about not losing credibility, and uh, since you know the value of the dollar depends on credibility of the Fed, and you know the, the world financial community looks to the Fed to uh sort of lead the way on fighting inflation and uh you know the, the fed is very much concerned about whether it's taken seriously it hasn't done a very good job in this last uh two-year period of getting out in front of this problem early and dealing with it uh, in advance and so it's had to sort of revise make it up as it goes along and frankly uh that was the fed chair said just this week, we don't really know where, whether we're going to have a recession or not next year. You know? So, um, there have been all kinds of forecasters like James diamond, of, Jamie diamond, of, uh, JP Morgan, uh, declare they're absolutely headed for a, a deep recession, which is defined by, uh, you know, a, at least a couple quarters of negative growth. Um, and we haven't had that for quite a while. So, you know, this is, uh, This is a concern that's on the minds of many people in the financial services community as well
0: as ordinary Americans. You're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. We're speaking with economist uh, James Henry. And, well, we've been talking about inflation, still trying to get a hold on that. And we sort of need, uh, we need a deck of trading cards of key economic terms so that us everyday folks can uh, get a a quick translation. Uh, But, you know, it it, it is interesting that uh, the language and, and not understanding the language of the Economy and of economics really puts us uh, at a disadvantage in terms of knowing what's happening. That's, of course, why we come to you, Jim. So, um, right. if uh, go on, I'm sorry, please. No, well, I was going to say, uh, you know, there, is,
1: there are some uh, important aspects of the general inflation story to, to emphasize. First of all, the general rate of inflation kind of this average across all these, this whole basket full of goods and services uh, is very much different from, let's say, what's happening to real wages or, you know, the real cost of milk or any particular sector. So that's a more specific issue, and it usually has to do with, um, you know, specific supply side issues, specific uh, demand issues in those sectors, uh, as opposed to the general rate of inflation, which is dependent on the Federal Reserve's manipulation of the money supply. Uh, so that's an important distinction for people to understand, the difference between the average rate of inflation over all the commodities in, on the, uh, you know, that they're purchasing and, and, uh, and the specific uh, rate of inflation. The other key thing is, to realize here is that this is very much a distributional issue, um you know, you have labor and management <laughs> sort of arguing about the distribution of income from corporate profits, which have been at a, a very high level uh, set record levels the first part of this year. Um, and uh, in the United States, um, other countries not nearly as as well. I mean China's had a lot of problems this year with corporate profits, but basically you have uh, labor going to the bargaining table where, where there is a bargaining table and saying, look, productivity growth has been really strong in the U.S. economy since 2019. And it's, we're not really keeping up uh, with the growth rate of, uh, of inflation. And so real wages are declining, even though productivity is growing. So that's another key aspect of the inflation story. The Federal Reserve tends to uh, sort of go after uh, accelerating rates of inflation, independent of this distributional question, uh, and that's in the background, uh, as every uh, union member can tell you.
0: Hmm. Uh, um, Jim, let's talk a little bit about um, how things like what happened recently with sam bankman freed the sort of the crypto criminal how does that kind of huge ripoff that sends reverberation through certain aspects of the economic community do we all end up paying a price for that kind of uh economics uh, voodoo economics or whatever you want to call it well i
1: think there's several concerns that i have there first of all uh you know bankman was basically printing money and then uh, buying a lot of political power, he was, by all accounts, uh, if not the largest, certainly one of the top ten uh, political contributors to Congress this year and this election year, uh, gave more than $90 million. Probably when you add everything up, we don't have the numbers, but it's more than $100 million, To most of which went to Democrats. Uh, and so, you know, he was trying to buy influence for, uh, basically his, uh, his industry, which was the crypto industry. Um, and part of the story was to try to minimize the amount of regulation, uh, that goes on, uh, from the federal reserve and also from, uh, you know, the SEC and other, uh, Washington regulators, U S treasury, uh, the, um, The phenomenal story about the sort of insider connections between, you know, uh, some of the uh, members of the bureaucracy in Washington and Bankman and his team are is phenomenal. You know, they're all kind of very close to people at MIT and Stanford, and they all sort of swim in the same water. And then there's all this political capital. So I think one concern here is about what this implies for the nature of unlimited political power being sold to, you know, very wealthy people. He Bagman is kind of an instant billionaire, but that's just a special case of a general problem. What we have is that political power can be quickly acquired by people who just happen to have money, not because of, as we've seen in Bagman's case, not because they're creating anything real, uh, but th- they were able, in fact, to avoid regulation. So um, the degree to which his activities presented what we call a systemic risk to the overall economy like you know the banks did back in 2008 uh is a sort of different story but i think there's a general problem that we're facing which is that there's a whole category of bankman like um investment funds and uh investment enterprises he was actually a crypto exchange uh and uh he gathered in a lot of you know, deposits from people and then sent him to his own hedge fund and the money disappeared. Uh, but there's a whole category of uh, investment funds that are basically somewhat similar in terms of being pyramid steel schemes. Um, you know, the so-called investment funds, uh, the OEFs as the IMF describes, them, now manage about $41 trillion of money in the world economy. Um, and they have uh, invested in lots of illiquid assets. And so there's, there's this concern that, you know, if there was a run on these assets, we'd have um, mini-Bankman-type stories. Um, and so some of the largest funds involved, like BlackRock and, uh, you know, the uh, some of these people are men- ma- uh, managing uh, U.S. pension funds, uh, advising them on what they should be advising, what they should invest in. We saw a couple pension funds actually investing uh in the bankman uh uh enterprise and you know there was it lost <laughs> the louisiana pension fund and the ottawa pension funds uh thought they would uh, capitalize on on the crypto boom and they lost their shirts so you know this is a general i mean it's 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 not what we call a macroeconomic concern necessarily unless there's some systemic risk that would involve taking down a lot of different uh, institutions. But when I looked under the covers here of Bankman's operations, he had a lot of investors uh, from uh, Wall Street and from Silicon Valley who had uh, dropped the Kool-Aid uh, without, with, with a surprising lack. I mean, Sequoia, one of the biggest uh, uh, venture capital firms, uh, the uh, BlackRock, these folks had given him money. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a concern that if they're that careless in terms of, you know, these are major advisors and, and venture firms, uh, if they're that careless with their investors money, what else are they doing uh, wrong? And so that's a general concern. I, I do hope that there's a thorough investigation of Bankman. Uh, but as we've seen, uh, you know, he's bought so much political clout in Washington that it may not happen
0: let me ask you this how, how uh, somebody like me that maybe makes 50 or 60 thousand dollars a year uh, how uh, am I going to be using cryptocurrency uh, why would I uh, want to um, be interested in this thing or is this just for a select group of people who will sooner or later, figure out a way to use it to extract what's left uh, uh, of the resources and money in the middle and uh, working class?
1: I really struggle to see the value of crypto as a means of payment. I mean, we already have currency, we have any number of uh, you know checking systems, we have uh, credit cards and, and debit cards. And so the idea that people really need uh, uh, crypto in order to do anything but, you know, conceal their, their uh, taxable income uh, is, uh, you know, is really hard to see. You can't buy anything with crypto. In Bitcoin, you know, is not something you can take down to the drugstore and buy. Uh, there were some efforts to, uh, uh, you know, to to make it more of a means of payment. But ultimately, it came down to sort of a Ponzi scheme, which people are holding the currency in the expectation that someone else will be willing to pay them for it at the end of the day. And that's, you know, that's just the opposite of having a secure store of value and uh you know, something that people want to use for a means of savings. I mean if I buy the farm, I can at least grow crops on it. But if I if I buy the cryptocurrency and stick it on my computer someday, it has absolutely no value right now. Not even as a means of payment. Most uh, most retailers can't accept it. And uh, it was strictly, I think it's almost a pure form of the tulip craze uh, that we saw in <laughs> the Netherlands. <laughs> so, um, but you know, it has a lot of, there are a lot of, uh, there's a whole army of people in Silicon Valley because it's it's technical, it has, you know, geeky attributes to it, it you know, it's sort of hard to explain, just has that that uh, sort of esoteric quality that, well, uh, you know, sort of computer uh, types sometimes fall in love with. And it also plays to sort of so-called libertarian instincts. Uh, You know, people who are sort of uh, thinking we can abolish governments and go back to having, you know, means of payment that are just based on the uh, open registers that don't require banks or regulation. They're just, you know, sort of self-enforcing systems. Um, I think that's not only theoretically preposterous for a lot of good, solid economic theory reasons, but it's also just empirically false. We've had a 1,000 years of capitalist history that's shown what happens when you don't have uh, financial uh, mechanisms that are basically regulated by somebody. And, uh, you know, the whole history of the United States is replete with banking crises. You know, crypto is, in a way, just another category of asset that has no regulatory background. It's like the banks in the 1830s, the people were sort of wildcat banking set up all the United States without any regulation and lo and behold, people found that they were issuing fraudulent uh, loans and their deposits disappeared. So there was no one looking over the shoulder of these bankers. Right. So, you know, right. I mean, it's it's kind of a fool there and so people are willing to put money into these, uh, you know, sort of valueless uh properties i mean nobody can really prevent uh fools and their money from being separated
0: well and the other problem we have here as witnessed by the fact that uh, for the first time in history um today the congress has recommended that the former president be uh uh indicted by the justice department be tried for uh (laughs) <laughs> uh an attempted at insurrection um but we you mentioned also uh that uh, uh Mr uh, uh Mr big time uh, crypto guy uh Sam uh bought a lot of democrats do you think what do you think the role is of uh, dark and dirty money say in bringing us a donald trump you think we would have had trump if there wasn't so much dark money and the ability to maneuver money various illegal ways that uh, rich people get away with all the time Yeah, but I think it starts
1: a lot earlier than most people are aware of. And I've written about this, and you can Google the articles I wrote from American Interest on the the origins of Trump's uh, recovery in the early 2000s. But frankly, you know, he had six bankruptcies in the 1990s, and nobody, no bank would finance him except for Deutsche Bank, which was very close to the Russians. And most of his other financing also came from offshore sources. And so his... His real recovery from 2000 to 2012 uh, was heavily dependent on uh, a lot of crooks that he was dealing with offshore. Now, this is something that Mueller investigation never really looked at. But, you know, we had uh, uh, a guy named Rivolovlov who bought Trump's Miami house uh, in 2008 for about $40 million more than Trump had paid for it. And coincidentally, Donald Trump was at that point just about ready to go bankrupt again. Uh, so at a very critical time, this Russian oligarch comes out of the blue and buys his house. And, you know, he has a lot of, of, of funny money that poured into his empire. Rudy Giuliani was partnering with uh, one of Trump's key advisors in laundering money for Kazakhstan. I mean, it just goes on and on, but none of this stuff was really investigated. If you roll forward now, you see dark money pouring into the financing of the Stop the Steal. Uh, and we've counted at least $3 million that went into bringing those folks together. Some of it we know was due to some entrepreneurs uh, like the owner of a public supermarket chain. But we just don't know uh, about where the, the rest of it come. It wasn't free to bring all the prod boys to Washington had about 2,000 people in Washington, 900 of them been charged with insurrection. Um, And so, you know, I was hoping that this investigation, uh, which concluded today with the recommendation that, uh, you know, four charges against Donald Trump personally would have gotten into all these other folks who are helping to finance this thing because it wasn't free and it ended up having a very close call. I mean, it was very close to having uh, some of our elected representatives actually uh, killed in in Washington that day. So, you know, I think there's a whole lot more investigation. Unfortunately, we're not going to have that because the new Congress is uh, probably going to drop this uh, unless the Justice Department continues it. Maybe the Justice Department will get into some of the dark money issues. Uh, but they can you same. do
0: you think anybody can make a good case at this point? Uh, yeah, how many times have you heard no no man no man usually it's no man is above the law, but uh, what yeah. kid? What teenager, what 12-, 15-year-old will believe that today when they see that the former president of the United States can assassinate cops, attempt to overthrow the government, uh, uh, applaud for a, uh, a, a a a potential hanging of his uh, own vice president, and still run for president? Is no man above the law? I mean, isn't this a, a big problem at the core of our society? Yeah, I mean, you're somebody who's studied finances six different ways and really— Help translate this stuff for the people, but we're in bad shape here. This hasn't changed much, has it? Well, I think the good news is that
1: uh, something like 60% of the American people now uh, hold Trump responsible for what went on that day, which was absolutely shameful and unprecedented in our nation's history. But where's the
0: Justice Department um, and the no-man's above the, the
1: justice, law, Jim? Well, the just, Justice Department, I think, has been taking its own sweet time with this kind of prosecution, and I would have hoped that they would have done something by now. But I'm, I'm, I think they have a kind of an inborn reluctance to indict a former president. And, you know, they're worried about the longer-term effects of that. That's a, that's a tough decision. But, yes, you're, you're asking the right question. Uh, there is a level of impunity uh, for powerful people and institutions uh, in this country. Last month, I went to the Department of Labor, and they held hearings on the uh, advisory uh, system for pension funds. And the question was, should the Department of Labor be able to kick, <laughs> kick an institution out that has been uh, serially convicted of, of financial crimes Uh, from advising U.S. public pension funds? I would have thought the answer was yes. But uh, I found that I had all these experts who were doing this for nothing is testifying about uh, how institutions like Credit Suisse and HSBC and UBS and uh, other major institutions that were advising U.S. funds as qualified pension asset managers uh, had also been convicted all over the planet for, you know, all kinds of chicanery
0: I, I listened um, to that we're running out of time I'm sorry to, but I listened to that you invited me to listen to that hearing and uh, I found it extraordinary that 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 really the government of the United States is is essentially impotent or it seems as though to really restrain these international corporate criminals they are simply the regulators never seem to be up to fit they're like they're trembling well, uh, shaking in the corners uh, and these corporations just move on. Well, we were up against so- at least 50 hired shills from the other side,
1: including the American banking industry. I know. Uh, so, it, you know, we, we need to do more uh, uh, focused sort of analysis of what's going on with financial institutions. But they have an enormous amount of, uh, of political clout. You know, they contributed in this election cycle as much as uh, uh, Bankman fried did. <laughs> sure at least 100 million dollars right. to top uh, pension fund advisors uh, to to congress so oh, you know
0: this is an ongoing story all right. Listen, uh, really appreciate it. We've been speaking with James Henry. His books include The Blood Banker's Tales from the Global Underground Economy and The Pirate Bankers. He's a global justice fellow at Yale, a senior fellow at the Columbia University Center for Sustainable Investment, and a former chief economist of McKinsey and Company. Boy, uh, that was an interesting place to start. We'll talk to you soon, Jim. Thanks for taking the time out Great. for us. Good to be with you. Thank you. Take, take care. And you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. We're going to take a short break, and we're going to talk about what is going on at the border. Title 42 still there, and the suffering is immense. Stay with us. Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. My name is Dennis Bernstein. We are live today in Los Angeles and San Francisco, and we are happy to have you along. We're also uh, happy to be able to welcome back to these airwaves somebody who's been uh, really on the front lines of uh, dealing with uh, what's happening at the border, uh, the immigration nightmare, so on and so forth. Nicole Phillips, she's the legal director at the Haitian Ridge Alliance. Uh, she'll be heading back to the border, I understand, again tomorrow. Uh, Nicole, welcome back to Flashpoints. Can you just sort of g- give us a, a general quick overview of what the situation is at the border? I, we always say it can't get worse, and it's getting worse. What does it look like these days? We're hearing uh, that it's a bit of a hellish situation.
2: Good evening, Dennis. It's great to be back with you. Um, well, right now, El Paso seems to be um, the hot point there. Over the last week or so, there have been um, an estimated around 2,500 or so migrants that have been crossing each day, um, and they um, have been allowed to come into um, into Texas um, through Juarez, and the... El Paso uh, mayor has just declared a state of emergency and is saying this doesn't bode well for if Title 42 ends. So what the the big sort of panic that's happening across the entire border from Texas to California um, is uh, whether or not um, this policy, Title 42, will end on December 21st. Um, And as your listeners will recall, Title 42 is a policy that the Trump administration um, put in place in order to st- close the border in and, and response ostensibly to the um pandemic the covid pandemic so they weren't allowing any asylum seekers to come in period um and and of course the scientists all said that that was not needed that actually wasn't keeping us safe at all it was just a pretext um we concluded to 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 close the border but the Biden administration continued on with that policy Um, but then about a, a year or so after um they came into power they the administration took over they um they Decided to stop Title 42. That's gone back and forth between courts, like a ping pong ball, on um, whether or not it's going to stop. As um, you can imagine, the red states and the Republicans really want it to stop. Uh, re- excuse me, really want to continue Title 42, so they have a, a, a reason to close the border, um, and a lot of of the Dems um, and certainly the immigrant advocates want it to, to reopen. So um, right now we don't know what's going to happen on 21st. It's it's up before SCOTUS. And it's up, they'll have the final word on what to do. But all of this confusion um, has trickled down to the border where people, like the lawyers, don't know what's going to happen on the 21st of December. And they don't know whether they should hurry and try and get across or um, potentially without inspection or whether they should... Um, try you know um wait and see what kind of a program is is rolled out by the Biden administration to replace Title 42 if it is lifted um the, the it's getting cold um and so el paso for example is supposed to be 22 degrees um in the next few days at night and so people are without shelter um they're sleeping in tents under tarps they don't have blankets sleeping bags um, jackets for children. It's, uh, it's a really, really desperate situation, um, all across the border is a as temperature freeze. And as, as people just get more and more scared about what is their future of, 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 seeking safety into the United States.
0: So the, the, the situation at the, who, who it's, who, who's coming now? It's Haitians. It's Venezuelans who, who, and it's Cubans. Who's at the border now? And are they being treated the same way?
2: Well, um, we've seen less Venezuelans because of the program that Biden um, put into place um, several weeks back now, um, which was allowing humanitarian parole for Venezuelans who flew into the United States as opposed to crossing by the land border. So that has stopped a big flow of Venezuelans from coming through the border. We do see an uptick in Nicaraguans, uh, as you mentioned, Cubans, certainly Haitians, um, Hondurans, and and of course Mexicans and others. But that seems to be the bulk of, of who we're seeing now, people that are fleeing gangs, um, political violence, um, conflict, um, and, and some who are just, you know, looking for, for a better life in the United States. But with your question to, to Haitians, um, we are seeing an uptick in Haitians that are coming directly from Haiti. Um, Haiti, as you know, is, is sort of a pressure cooker, unfortunately, um, of, 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 political instability and violence. And so people are, are being forced to flee, um, and are, um, coming as quickly as, as they
0: can to try and rejoin family into the United States you're listening to flashpoints on Pacifica radio we're speaking with Nicole Phillips she's legal director uh, for Haitian bridge Alliance and we're talking about the uh, this is I guess um, what is today uh, the 19th so you're you're essentially there really is no directive in people directives, you say you're heading down to the border tomorrow, but you don't really know what the law is going to be, right? You don't your advisement of folks who are arriving is, if you will, crippled by uh, a lack of policy of any policy
2: that's right yeah the the lawyers we are we are at a severe disadvantage because we don't know how to what what recommendations exactly to give um, our communities our clients but but so are the humanitarian organizations on the ground they don't know whether title 42 will lift they don't know if you're in San Diego or in El Paso um, you, you don't know whether you're about to receive thousands of people passing through uh, or not. And so it's been very hard to, to plan accordingly um, in, in order to be responsive to, to, to what will happen. Um, but, you know, for, for the messaging, the reason we're going down is because of this confusion. And we want to make sure people can ask lawyers about what's happening, that they hear straight from us. Um, about what the different scenarios are of what could happen. And, and mostly just to sort of warn people not to cross outside of ports of entry, not to, to cross without inspection, because um, we are anticipating that the, the Biden administration would likely detain people um, and potentially deport them. So so we want them to avoid that. Um, but it really requires a lot of faith that the administration will provide them with a fair opportunity to apply for asylum to seek asylum which uh, no administration has has really done for for a number of years and so that is that's it's difficult for 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 migrants to 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 have that trust
0: I imagine that you've spent some time thinking about The kinds of things that would really need to happen when we're talking about humane immigration reform. What comes to mind for you? What are the kinds of things uh, that need to happen? If you were an advisor to the president, what would you be telling him?
2: I really like that question because I feel like we're so on the defensive to just open the border and allow people to seek asylum um but but really we shouldn't be there really where we should be is answering the question you're asking which is what would it look like to have a fair inclusive um asylum system and and um what that would encounter what that would entail would be that people would be able to not be detained we know you cannot fight your own asylum case when you're detained um away from family most of the people i've spoken to whether they're haitian from cameroon um or or from venezuela they've experienced significant trauma um either the reason they fled their country was because of, of trauma political violence sexual gender-based violence and or the journey that they took to get to the border was filled with violence persecution and trauma and so to put somebody in a in a jail um with freezing temperatures um and not allow them um to really the the full meaningful opportunity to seek asylum to, to, to not even be able to find an attorney easily and to not be able to be with their family and in the comfort of of somebody's home um, i think that puts them at a significant disadvantage um, further in order to get out of that detention facility we often make them pay a bond um, and under the trump administration those bonds for black immigrants we're costing upwards of forty and $50,000 to just get out of immigration detention just for the right to seek asylum, which is already an international, uh, an internationally protected human right. Um, but beyond that, they should have immigration judges that are fair, that know about their country, that understand Haiti and what people are going through in Haiti or Cameroon or Guatemala. Um, they should um, have interpretation that's good, um, that is, is is adequate and, um, and fair for them. Um, there's a whole host of, of, um, of things that should be guaranteed that, that seem obvious obvious due process, but is not unfortunately afforded to, to, to most um, to most migrants. In fact, the asylum approval rating is extremely low. It seems like it would be high, but for example, for Haitians, about maybe one in ten. Um, who apply for asylum will win and that's extraordinarily low con- considering what's going on in Haiti right now and it just shows you the bias in the system and not being able to access attorneys um, and in not um, having a fair shake before an immigration judge.
0: You know the, it's, it's uh, sort of a, a bit of terrible genius, uh, policy genius, the inventing of 42, because uh, it's the, the best thing to come along since white bread when it comes to denying asylum. Uh, and it's just amazing the, the suffering that has caused, as you know, uh, in the Haitian community is immense in terms of the, uh, the ability for thousands of people to be flown back in the face of what everybody knows is an extraordinarily violent situation so whoever invent who did invent 42 I know it's the Trump administration is that who, who gave us that one do we know
2: yeah I think it's probably gonna be the strongest part of Stephen Miller's legacy so Stephen Miller who is you know was his, was Trump's advisor in immigration from California um, originally He um, started devising this plan in in 2018, 2019, before he even got word of the pandemic. And he was looking for other potential diseases to use um, with this Title 42 policy. And what it is is that the U.S. Health and Safety Code, which on a very limited basis allows some um, processing for people who CBP um identifies as potentially carrying a communicable disease and so they were thinking perhaps smallpox (laughs) or tuberculosis or something like that there there may have been a small measles epidemic back then you know 2018-19 and he hit the mother load because all of a sudden the covid pandemic came so within weeks the first thing the biden excuse me the trump administration did they were already the memos were already prepared um and so we just had to fill, people, in
0: we just fill in the blank, just fill in the blank wow, yeah well then that was my best question i think um i i i that that is sort of um sort of criminal racism, right, but we know old Stevie Boy was uh top of the line when it came to sort of Nazi implementations, uh anyway um
2: Well, and he's not stopping. Don't think for a second. He's retired because when I mentioned the court battles that are happening, sort of ping pong games with Title 42, um, he and his organization did file, of course, an amicus brief on behalf of the 22 conservative red states that have been trying to keep this policy in place to keep the border closed. So he's still (laughs) throwing around his opinions um, and, and, and his weight.
0: Amazing. All right. Listen, I really appreciate you joining us. I know you got a lot on your mind and a lot going on. Uh, We have been speaking with Nicole Phillips. She is legal director with the Haitian Bridge Alliance. They do very good work. There's always a lot to talk about. Thanks, Nicole, for taking the time out to be with us.
2: My pleasure.
0: Thank you. All right. And you're listening to Flashpoints. Uh, We're going to take You may have heard uh, that... uh, (laughs) <laughs> that the former president of the United States was recommended for uh, prosecution for essentially trying to overthrow the last election and uh, a few other things, insurrection, stuff like that. I, I guess they somewhere in the, the, in the language they have to have the, uh, the Mike Pence and the potential hanging or whatever, but we wanted to play some sounds from the hearing today that includes uh, Liz Cheney, so listen to
3: this. Good afternoon. And may God bless the United States of America. To cast a vote in the United States is an act of faith and hope. When we drop that ballot in the ballot box, we expect the people named on the ballot are going to uphold their end of the deal. The winner swears an oath and upholds it. Those who come up short ultimately accept the results and abide by the rule of law. That faith in our system is the foundation of American democracy. If the faith is broken, so is our democracy. Donald Trump broke that faith. He lost the 2020 election and knew it, but he chose to try to stay in office through a multi-part scheme to overturn the results and block the transfer of power. In the end, he summoned a mob to Washington and knowingly they were armed and angry, pointed them to the Capitol and told them to fight like hell. There's no doubt about this. This afternoon, my colleagues will present our key findings, reminding you of some of the information we presented in earlier hearings and telling you how it fits in our broader conclusions. Those conclusions have helped shape the committee's final report, which we'll adopt today pursuant to House Resolution 503, which establishes the select committee nearly a year and a half ago. I expect our final work will be filed with the Clerk of the House and made public later this week. Beyond that release, the select committee intends to make public the bulk of its non-sensitive records before the end of the year. These transcripts and documents will allow the American people to see for themselves the body of evidence we've gathered and continue to explore the information that has led us to our conclusions. This committee is nearing the end of its work. But as the country, we remain in strange and uncharted waters. We've never had a president of the United States stir up a violent attempt to block the transfer of power. I believe nearly two years later, this is still a time of reflection and reckoning. If we are to survive as a nation of laws and democracy, this can never happen again. How do we stop it? This committee will lay out a number of recommendations in this final report, but beyond any specific details and recommendations we present, There's one factor I believe is most important in preventing another January 6th, accountability. So today, beyond our findings, we will also show that evidence we've gathered points to further action beyond the power of this committee or the Congress to help ensure accountability under law. Accountability that can only be found in the criminal justice system. We have every confidence that the work of this committee will help provide a roadmap map to justice and that the agencies and institutions responsible for ensuring justice under the law will use the information we've provided to aid in their work. And for those of you who have followed this committee's work, I hope we've helped make clear that there's a broader kind of accountability Accountability to all of you, the American people. The future of our democracy rests in your hands. It's up to the people of this country to decide who deserves the public trust, who will put fidelity to the Constitution and democracy above all else, who will abide by the rule of law no matter the outcome. I'm grateful to the millions of you who've followed this committee's work I hope we lived up to our commitment to present the facts and let the facts speak for themselves. Let me say in closing, the women and men seated around me on this dais are public servants in the most genuine sense. They put aside politics and partisanship to ensure the success of this committee in providing answers to the American people. I especially want to thank and acknowledge our vice chair, who has become a true partner in this bipartisan effort, Ms. Cheney of Wyoming. And I also recognize her for any opening statement that she care to offer.
4: Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman, and thank you for your your tremendous leadership of this committee. I know we all have benefited uh, greatly from, from your wisdom and your wise counsel, so thank you very much. In April of 1861, when Abraham Lincoln issued the first call for volunteers for the Union Army, my great-great-grandfather, Samuel Fletcher Cheney, joined the 21st Ohio Volunteer Infantry. He fought through all four years of the Civil War, from Chickamauga to Stones River to Atlanta. He marched with his unit in the Grand Review of Troops up Pennsylvania Avenue in May of 1865. Past a reviewing stand where President Johnson and General Grant were seated. Silas Canfield, the regimental historian of the 21st Ohio Volunteer Infantry, described the men in the unit this way. He said they had a just appreciation of the value and advantage of free government and the necessity of defending and maintaining it. And they enlisted prepared to accept all the necessary labors, fatigues, exposures, dangers, and even death, for the unity of our nation and the perpetuity of our institutions. I have found myself thinking often, especially since January 6th, of my great-great-grandfather and all those in every generation who have sacrificed so much for the unity of our nation and the perpetuity of our institutions. At the heart of our republic is the guarantee of the peaceful transfer of power. Members of Congress are reminded of this every day as we pass through the Capitol Rotunda. There, eight magnificent paintings detail the earliest days of our republic. One, painted by John Trumbull, depicts the moment in 1793 when George Washington resigned his commission handing control of the Continental Army back to Congress. Trumbull called this, quote, one of the highest moral lessons ever given the world. With this noble act, George Washington established the indispensable example of the peaceful transfer of power in our nation. Standing on the west front of the Capitol in 1981, President Ronald Reagan described it this way. The orderly transfer of authority as called for in the Constitution routinely takes place, as it has for almost two centuries, and few of us stop to think how unique we really are. In the eyes of many in the world, this every four-year ceremony that we accept as normal is nothing less than a miracle. Every president in our history has defended this orderly transfer of authority except one. January 6th, 2021 was the first time one American president refused his constitutional duty to transfer power peacefully to the next. In our work over the last 18 months, the Select Committee has recognized our obligation to do everything we can to ensure this never happens again. At the beginning of our investigation, we understood that tens of millions of Americans had been persuaded by President Trump that the 2020 election was stolen by overwhelming fraud. And we also knew this was flatly false. We knew that dozens of state and federal judges had addressed and resolved all manner of allegations about the election. Our legal system functioned as it should, but our president would not accept the outcome. Among the most shameful of this committee's findings was that President Trump sat in the dining room off the Oval Office, watching the violent riot at the Capitol on television. For hours, he would not issue a public statement instructing his supporters to disperse and leave the Capitol, despite urgent pleas from his White House staff and dozens of others to do so. Members of his family, his White House lawyers, virtually all those around him knew that this simple act was critical. For hours, he would not do it. During this time, law enforcement agents were attacked and seriously injured. The Capitol was invaded, the electoral count was halted, and the lives of those in the Capitol were put at risk. In addition to being unlawful, as described in our report, this was an utter moral failure and a clear dereliction of duty. Evidence of this can be seen in the testimony of President Trump's own White House counsel, and several other White House witnesses. No man who would behave that way at that moment in time can ever serve in any position of authority in our nation again. He is unfit for any office. The committee recognizes that our work has only begun. It's only the initial step in addressing President Trump's effort to remain in office illegally. Prosecutors are considering the implications of the conduct that we describe in our report. As are citizens all across our nation. In 1761, John Adams wrote, the very ground of our liberties is the freedom of elections. Faith in our elections and the rule of law is paramount to our republic. Election deniers, those who refuse to accept lawful election results, purposely attack the rule of law and the foundation of our country. The history of our time will show that the bravery of a handful of Americans doing their duty saved us from an even more grave constitutional crisis. Elected officials, election workers, and public servants stood against Donald Trump's corrupt pressure. Many of our committee's witnesses showed selfless patriotism and their words and courage will be remembered. The brave men and women of the Capitol Police, the Metropolitan Police, and all the other law enforcement officers who fought to defend us that day saved lives and our democracy. Finally, I wish to thank my colleagues on this committee. It has been a tremendous honor to serve with all of you, We have accomplished great and important things together, and I hope we have set an example. And I also want to thank all of those who have honorably contributed to the work of our committee and to our report. We have accomplished much over a short period of time. Many of you sacrificed for the good of our nation. You have helped make history, and I hope, helped to right the ship. Thank you, Mr. Chairman,
3: I yield back. Years back. As you know, this is our final meeting of our committee. Over the course of the last year and a half, we presented evidence in 10 public hearings, testimony from our brave law enforcement officers, senior White House, and campaign officials, and many others. Today, we are prepared to share our final findings with you. But before we do so, It's important to remember what we've learned and critically exactly what happened at the United States Capitol on January 6th. Without objection, I include in the record a video presentation of some of the key evidence our investigation has uncovered.
2: There were officers on the ground, they were bleeding, they were throwing up. I I mean, I saw friends with blood all over their faces. I was slipping in people's blood.
1: As I was swarmed by a violent mob, they ripped off my badge. They grabbed and stripped me of my radio. They seized ammunition that was secured to my body. They began to beat me with their fists and with what felt like hard metal objects and that wraps it up for another episode of flashpoints our executive producer is dennis bernstein senior producers are miguel gavilan molina and kevin pina technical director is mike biggs For previous episodes, go to
0: kpfa.org or flashpoints.net. For questions or comments, email dennis at kpfa.org. Thank you for listening.